Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a bunch of different movies, but just specific parts of all those movies. Because if everyone remembers uh, a couple years ago, or in the first year of The Rewind, I think, and maybe in the second, uh, but definitely maybe only the first, uh, I did like an awards episode where I did a couple of fake awards, but then I did some actual awards and just kind of threw it together. And I I, I flirted with doing that again this year and just it didn't come together. But the one thing I always enjoy talking about going back to my old podcast is having some kind of discussion about the best scenes of the year, because I feel like that is something that could be its own Oscar category if people wanted to like figure out what the parameters for that would be. We don't have to really adhere to such strict rules here, but I wanted to kind of talk to all of our uh, most uh, our most frequent guests who join me for the top 10 episode every year to at least get 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 some uh get get some insight as to what their favorite scenes were because i figured we could get a variety in there and just revisit some of the different highs from those specific points in each of the movies of last year that we really like and i'll probably talk i, I might reference some others as we go through everyone's but most i'm sure most everything that all of our guests are going to say is something that i also have feelings about and maybe at the end i might just shout out a couple of honorable mentions that didn't pop up between everyone else's that i still wanted to highlight because i have my own kind of little list going on there but first we're going to be joined by our friend in animation slash disney slash uh, Pixar correspondent Joe Morgan to talk about his favorite scene of the year. Joe, I understand that your favorite scene of the year comes from your number one movie of the year, The Banshees of Inishirin. That's right. Yeah. And it comes in a part of the film where um, Patrick basically is confronting uh, Colm in the bar, right? This is when Colm's been like, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. I don't want to talk to you anymore. And it's been a couple of months since I've already seen the movie. I mean, he, he he's doing that a lot throughout. He's been telling him, mm-hmm. uh, or, or excuse me, Colm has been telling Patrick throughout, like, you know, mm-hmm. get lost. And at a certain point after he has cut off uh, multiple fingers, one of which I think at that point has led to the tragic death of Jenny the donkey, RIP Jenny. And at, at that point, I think finally, uh, Patrick, it's a breaking point. And I think it's one for one, like, it's just, you know, I think it's memorable not only for the writing in the scene, but also like a different, we, we finally see a different side of this Colin Farrell performance it was just like, I, I think both you and I agree, probably the best performance an actor gave all year. So it, it's, it's what, what really struck you in that moment as someone that had already kind of been in this world for a while, see, seeing this relationship fall apart, but all of a sudden we're kind of at a new breaking point. Yeah. You know, and I, I think it parallels the, the Gene Smart monologue in um, Babylon pretty nicely, where she tells Brad Pitt's character that by being in the movies, he's going to be immortal, right? Mm-hmm. And like, Colm is in search of this immortality, right? He's worried about being forgotten. Like, he wants to pursue his music career so he can leave something behind, right? And then Patrick is just like, You used to be nice. You used to be nice. And like, I remember my father because he was nice. I'll always remember my sister because she was nice and you get that really sweet moment where you see Siobhan briefly in the background and it's just one of those things where you know you like it it made me think about my life a lot right especially with having kids now and it's like you you look at the scope of your life and you're like what's more important that I accomplish something or do something notable that I can leave behind or like is it that I'm nice to people or that I'm decent to people and like how do those two go hand in hand? How does one take away from the other? Things like that. And I just think it really got to the essence of what the whole thing is, right? Like, it's just like, and it's just so touching because it's like, you know, what do you do with someone when they are just stonewalling you completely, right? And, you know, like, I, you just feel so desperately for Patrick here when he says yeah. all this because you see that good heart underneath the kind of doofus of a character that he is but, but at a certain point in the movie he does he, he kind of like you know uh he kind of pushes things too far also and yeah. mm-hmm. uh which i think is, it's kind of smart to do it makes you think a little harder in that regard but uh you know at the same time you know it it, it kind of raises the question and which comes to a bit of a boiling point in the scene where you know again like he's he's finally just erupting is you know is there a good way to end a friendship you know it's it's something mm-hmm. i kind of struggled with in thinking about and kind of talking about a little bit it was like you know i think there's like in some ways it's hard it's it's harder to come to terms with that than it is the end of like a, a romantic relationship i think people in certain ways just kind of expect a certain amount of romantic relationships in the course of your life to like you know run their course sometimes it's just it's breakups are a part of it and it seems more natural than just like ending an actual friendship if there's not like a a specific like betrayal that is easy to point to as the reason for it and i think that makes it all the harder to stomach when there's not something like that there but like what is the right way to go about it probably not what Colm does, but like, he's allowed to end, not be friends with someone, but you know, mm-hmm. at the same time, he's just like, he's just like not going about it the right way. And I think 
you know, I think I think what's no also notable about that point in the movie is like even if he's not like all of a sudden ready to go be friends with Patrick at that point, it's kind of like well, Colin Farrell's performance in that moment is like so powerful that I think it finally makes Colm realize like, hey, I've taken things too far. And- yeah, Colm even says like I uh, he says something to the effect of like I almost want to be friends with him again because that's the most interesting he's ever been. <laughs> that, that says all that, which is yeah. a, which is a great line in the moment. Oh, um, Poor Patrick. But, yeah, and. So it's it's so funny. This movie takes place in 1923, and so essentially 100 years ago. But it says a lot about our social media moment as well. It's like you look at all your social networks, and it's not really your friends. It's just a list of people of of every single person you've ever met, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on that list, because it's like, oh, it's like your neighbors like grandparents are your friends and stuff. And like, sure, they're great and decent people, but like, are they your friends, right? And so it it's just like um like what what is friendship you know and um what are like the limits and how do you let in the people you want to let in and then gently decently push away the people that you don't want around anymore yeah and also just like you know uh uh what i you know and also just kind of like asking like what what in life i guess and you already kind of touched on it a little bit by like you know asking yourself if you want to be remembered for something or anything like that but at the same time you know understanding like when people like you know understanding when like the, when the right time to let someone go is too. And, and, mm-hmm. and we're, 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 we, I mean, I'm sure we could probably do a whole other podcast about this movie, but you know, I mean, it's something where it's like, you know, let it, letting other people like get the, uh, grasp that satisfaction in their life. Cause like he, he has to kind of like see, see, see his sister, like go off like that, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's hard. And, you know, just kind of like trying to balance your own need to be fulfilled with like letting the other people in your life be happy. It's it's it, on top of everything else. I think the movie does a good job of like contemplating that as well. So mm-hmm. uh, Joe, thank you for talking about uh, one of the more memorable scenes of the year in movies with me. It was one that like, wasn't even necessarily on the tip of my head. It was not like, I, 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 I kind of like typed out like seven or eight on my own already in advance of doing this podcast and, uh, and mm-hmm. talking to what I think is going to pop up on other people's. So I think I correctly kind of predicted a, a, a few of them, but like that was one that I just hadn't highlighted. So thank you for bringing that to our attention. And we look forward to talking about some more great scenes with you next year. And now we're joined by recurring guest Elijah Howard to talk about his favorite scene of the year, which comes from After Sun. Like, After Sun, like, comes up, it kind of, like, I think there's, like I mentioned before, there's, like, a lot going on under the surface, like, kind of throughout. But I think, like, the scene with this, the dance scene, which is, I guess, what I want to talk about, if that's, like, clear and cut your number one of the year. I'm wondering, like, that is probably where the movie starts being, like, all right, if you weren't already, like, starting to feel something, we're going to hit you with a ton of bricks now. So I'm wondering, like, I don't know if you if you've only watched the movie once or twice. Have you have you rewatched it yet? I watched it twice. Yeah, I watched it once by myself and then once with Haley. Yeah. So did the final like under pressure sequence and everything it started cutting to in that moment, did it like hit you then or did it like hit you again on the even harder on the second viewing? And why did that scene stick with you? It hit me. It hit me equally hard both okay. times. <laughs> both times it just, you know, slams into you. Um, And. Yeah, I mean. I don't I think by that point in the movie, right, you already the audience is already aware that this woman that the movie has cut to a few times, um, this adult woman watching tapes of, uh, you know, watching the tapes that Sophie's making. That's the adult Sophie. I don't know if it's explicitly stated at that point yet. I think it is once. I think her girlfriend in in the later scene says later in, in, in one scene says something like, oh, Sophie coming like, but uh that scene to me was just the apotheosis of all those ideas and bringing the adult Sophie into the fold there. I mean, this is a movie that's it's it's from primarily from a child's perspective, but it is definitely not meant to be watched by children or as a child, shall we say. Um, it's a it's a movie about an adult Remembering a uh, co- very, yeah, yeah. Corre- uh, collecting her thoughts and her memories of a certain time and a certain person, and that decision to to hit that climax with this beautiful memory being very stylishly but also very aggressively invaded by her adult presence. I just you know it rem it 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 hit very close to home with me in terms of how I view, uh, you know, my own past. You know, I'm a very, obviously I work in the, the film industry. I'm a very image focused person. 
Uh, and when I think back in the past, I think of my memories as, as you know, like this, as recordings, if you will. And I don't have the the privilege of having a lot of actual recordings. I have a lot of photographs, but I don't have much video of my life, you know, as a kid or my, you know, my time with my parents, uh, you know, from when I was a kid. So it, it's, it again, just, you know, it talked about catharsis with this movie, with a lot of movies this year. And to me, that's just, a, a deeply deeply cathartic scene of somebody somebody going back to a memory um a memory that is that's incomplete uh and and trying to fill in the gaps and trying to make sense of things that she didn't understand when she was a kid um and trying to ultimately trying to find something find sympathy for her dad trying to find sympathy for somebody who she's struggled with for so long and just i know i i very intimately know that feeling and so that for me was just a just a completely blown away by that scene beautifully said the one thing i will add to that is that you know as you said it's like a it's like a in some ways it's like a happy memory in a very happy time in that moment in Sophie's life. But at the same time, like you're getting to watch that, but then you can also have the realization at the same time that may very well be the last moment in her life where she was like aware of her father seeming happy in the moment. You know, we don't know the full story about what, it, when exactly the end of their relationship occurred. It is obviously very heavily implied today. You know, he is not in her life. If even, you know, still with us on this planet at the time she is watching those uh, videos, but like, you know, the, I, given all the darkness we know was like kind of going under the surface with Callum, like that, there's a very good chance that like that moment where they are dancing and you kind of become aware of it as the movie is winding down, like that might be the last time she ever saw him with a smile on his face or something. Like it's so it's like it's kind of like a it's kind of like a double whammy in a way and like with like good and bad feelings. Like there's just so much going on there. It's really impressive to say like you know just how how much that just packs into that like just how much is actually packed into that those those couple moments emotionally it is a very great nomination for scene of the year and yeah elijah thank you thank you for sharing your thoughts on that with us absolutely all right and now we're back with fred cobb to talk about his favorite scene of the year but i think fred is going to uh pitch this a little differently and maybe talk about a couple scenes that uh, share a lot of DNA. So, Fred, it sounds like you were in a just a bit of a a, a dancing mood in 2022. Yeah, so I, I, I'm trying to remember um, if a lot of musicals came out this year that I saw, and I actually really didn't. And last year we had all of them with like Tick Tick Boom, West Side Story, mm -hmm. Cyrano in the Heights. Uh, last year really was the year of the musical, uh, and this year we didn't really get a ton of that. I think last year was Dear Evan Hansen too, which not as good, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, which I still haven't seen, and I don't think that's going to You don't need to. <laughs> right. But there's been so much talk, like, over the past months and year or two about getting people back into movie theaters and why people should go back to the movie theaters when everything is available for rent so quickly now. There's a lot of good stuff on the streaming platforms. Um and I think it really comes down to just exciting content being on the big screen that really just pops uh, when you see it like in a movie theater as opposed to just on your TV at home. And the reason why I picked these two scenes is because one of them I did see at home and one of them I did see in a movie theater. And I really wish I had seen both of them in a movie theater because I think that's really where they were meant to be seen. So just to kind of set the stage here, the first scene, uh, the one that everybody loves and enjoys, uh, is the Natu Natu dance in RRR, where the two guys get invited to a party exclusively attended by uh, British people who do all of their traditional dancing, the waltz. He, he one guy demonstrates the tango at one point. And then uh, the two Indian guys, uh, they show off some of their own culture and they start doing their own dance. And of course, it's so infectious and so exciting that everybody just starts participating. Uh, which is pretty impressive because I don't think you would get that in real life because the dance actually looks kind of tricky and physically challenging. <laughs> I'd really like to actually be at an event uh, at some point where a big just flat dancing flash mob breaks out. I think that would be quite exciting. And the other dance that I'm thinking of is uh, Margot Robbie's uh, big dance in Babylon uh, in the opening scene, which is a scene that has been shared a lot on Twitter as kind of uh, an indictment that people didn't see it in theaters. Uh, oh. 
<laughs> as in like why would you want why would you want to miss this in theaters like why would you want to see this on your small tv screen at home when it's really meant for the big screen and and i do think that there are obvious benefits to seeing moments like that in movie theaters because ultimately yeah of course some people that you're going to share a movie theater with are not going to be on their best behavior and of course there are downsides to having people munch on their popcorn right next to you and people will occasionally be talking but when you're just surrounded by everything and you see that scene in front of you and the sound plays around you it actually really feels like you're part of that scene in some way it sounds like a cliche but it is actually true and that early scene in babylon just really pulled me right into the movie where i was like okay we have something really fascinating and exciting going on right now. And if it can keep up this energy and this pace, uh, we're going to be in for something quite special. When it did for a lot um, of the movie, but when you say like that early scene in Babylon, you're more focusing on her dancing within that as opposed to like everything in the party orgy leading up to that, I guess. Yeah, well, so. well, which is, yeah, because it's kind of the same thing as in the Natu Natu dance where she is ultimately the one taking center stage in a massive set piece. Right, right. I think it's really impressive to direct it that way because even though there's so much going on in the background, you still have to retain the focus on that one character or mm. two characters in RRR who are doing something unique. And I can't even imagine how difficult it is to direct a scene like that because it involves a ton of extras, obviously. It involves a ton of dancing choreography. The music has to be just right. And I think it's kind of fitting that uh, we're talking about uh, the, I think, likeliest best original score and best original song winner this year, respectively. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Uh, at, least, at least I would say the favorite ones. And that's, I think, where you really have a chance, again, to present your score and your song. And it seemed like that. I'm personally not a big fan of original songs being just played in the credits, because that's mm -hmm. when a lot of people are already walking out or have left the theater. And you don't really get to experience that being a part of the movie. But when you have a big song that's like right in the middle of the action or uh, just a big musical piece like the one Justin Herbert's provided for Babylon uh, that everybody gets to experience, I think that's going to stick with people and those are going to be much more obvious winners for these awards than just scores that play very nicely in the background. And obviously those are very good and very difficult scores to compose as well. But I don't think they're ever going to register quite on that same level. And I know we're talking about only two scenes, but I could really throw in a third scene as well, which is the first big performance by Elvis in Elvis. Mm where he does his like dance on the stage and everybody just goes crazy and starts cheering. Enjoyed watching those hips, Fred? Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> yeah. My, my, just, you know, my grandma crazy. got a kick out of that too. Yeah, no, of course, because like, you sit in the movie theater and you're kind of waiting for the fun stuff to happen because you know that he was such an exciting stage presence. You're trying to understand why did everybody go crazy for this guy? And I thought Elvis, unfortunately, kind of slowed down a little bit in the second half and it didn't quite keep up that energy and that momentum. But again, a scene that's early in the movie that is just very exciting. There's a lot of stuff happening, a lot of extras in the background doing their thing, but you're still focusing on that one character on the stage. Yeah, no, I'm glad you highlighted Elvis too, even if uh, even if you uh, cheated and went for three scenes, because I kind of shit, I've shit on Elvis a bit myself. Uh, I, Joe, Joe and Daniel did the podcast on that. They were like much higher on it than me. And I was pretty negative aside from the fact that like, I look, I, I have to admit, like, I didn't dislike it, but like I was just like worried it was going to get even more Oscar hype than it was. Thankfully, I don't know if it'll win much, which I'm fine with. Uh, but like I was like I was like I would be really upset if like Austin Butler won Best Actor, not Colin Farrell. Like it just it, it just would bother me. And I so I, I think I've been more down on it than I had because of that. But like at the same time, as I've told everyone, uh, I went with my 78 year old grandma who normally like is it's not surprising if she like falls asleep in a movie that's like half the length of this one i mean like it's it's just you know she just does sometimes and she 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 not only stayed awake for the entire like two hour and 40 minute runtime but didn't even get up to go to the bathroom and i think like it does it deserves credit for that if nothing else and i think a big part of that is just how electric the the music sequences were and it certainly uh if you're gonna get one thing right in an elvis movie you better get that one thing right i think he i think Baz Luhrmann gets credit for that if nothing else even if i can't stand the way he edits his films so <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah well fred i appreciate uh getting all your thoughts on that i think i and uh sticking with the consistent theme and highlighting all all, all the great musical moments we had in movies this year so uh thank you for uh joining us and again thank you for being a, a, a frequent presence on the rewind this year and i look forward to talking with about some fun scenes with you next year 
All right. And now we're back with Josh Brown to talk about his favorite scene of 2022. And uh, Josh, we I, we also, uh, the same day we're recording this, we recorded your top 10, one notable admission, because I wasn't sure how you thought about the movie going in, was Tar. But as we were discussing <laughs> what your favorite scene might be, you said, I'd, I'd still like to talk about the, the, the Juilliard scene in Tar, which is a very notable one, but not one that anyone has picked yet. So I'm wondering... What what made this scene really work for you in a way that maybe the rest of the movie didn't? Yeah, no. So, like, I, I don't have Tar in my top ten. Like, by the way, when listeners at home, when he was asking me to name uh, great scenes from the year, I, you know, rattled off, like, ten. All right. And, and you know, when we're trying, you know, I, I kind of want to be a little bit different. I wanted to do something that's not necessarily you would kind of expect from me. But then, like, when he had told me that nobody picked a Juilliard sequence, and I thought, huh, that's kind of interesting because this is in a movie that I was really cold on. All right. Now, for listeners at home, let me be clear. All right. I when I'm going into the movie, I I went in very sleep deprived because I didn't get any night's sleep. I had to go coach like a debate tournament. And then from there, I took two energy drinks right before I saw the movie. So the first hour and 45 minutes, I'm on the movie's wavelength, like from the how the credits are done to the um uh, uh uh this interview at the new yorker i'm on this movie's wavelength right and the probably the time i'm most on this movie wavelength it is the juilliard scene right um after uh later in the film um the pacing of it just kind of tested my patience a bit. And that could just be the state I was in while watching the movie. And another contender uh, for best scene of the year from the same movie would be the ending of the film, which is the punchline. But um, the Juilliard sequence, like if you're a fan of this movie, this is the scene that you choose because it's a showcase for both Kate Blanchett, you know, like, uh, like the dynamic, uh, performance she's giving while delivering this monologue and also Todd Field's direction where it's done in a wonder but done in a, in a very interesting way where it's not extremely showy until it is and it just has this cold precision that matches like Blanchett and the words she's saying or dissing with this ca uh, student character that she's interacting and it's also a movie. It's just the scene where it's interrogating the movie's theme. Right. right? Just the About, content, the content of it really challenges the audience for given what we've seen from uh it's a provocation. Yeah. Yeah, it's a genuine audience provocation, right? Because at that point in time in the film, I don't even think your like your opinion of Lydia is fully formed. All right. But it might be after this scene, right? I think like you can accept that she's like a prickly character um beforehand. But you don't really under you don't know the full extent of you know her bad behavior, right? But her making this case that I feel like a lot of artists in her uh, high status would probably be making against cancel culture. It's very interesting because, like you know, I'm not really like a huge fan of the movie, even though like everything I have to say about it is pretty positive. But I see critics that like are attacked who do not like the movie. That do think it has a regressive uh, theme on cancel culture. I think that's a misread, right? But yeah, this see the sequence is like, all right, like it, it's very well directed, and also it's like the sequence that probably gets Kate Blanchett like her Oscar. Like th th this is like the best scene in the movie. Yeah, I I was I was uh, fairly blown away by it too. Like I, I guess I I don't really know I don't really remember what I thought about the movie going what I knew about the movie going in. Maybe I heard it had some element about it about cancel culture, but I I I don't remember now what I what what level of knowledge I had learned about the plot going in. But at a certain point, I was like I don't think I exactly knew that we we're in for this kind of downfall for her. In fact, maybe I thought it would just be some professional challenge she would face and uh, overcome in a different way. But I was just like at that point, we were just you know she was fairly likable and just maybe not the most like warm and f friendly person, but like we, we, we know enough about her at that point in the movie. You know, she's really good at what she does. And Kate, Kate Blanchett clearly is just like, you know, so in control of this performance that it, you can't help, but like still, you know, uh, be a little in invested in her and, and want good things for Lydia. And then it's just like, it really, really just like confronts you with a different version of her than like what you've seen up to that point. And you're really having to reconcile it. And like you said, it, it's, 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 it's thought provoking. And I, it's, I think it's really cool when a movie can just like make you like look that much inward and think that much when there's still like, you know, well over an hour and a half left. 
uh, or maybe yeah. two two hours left. That's like a two hour and forty minute movie, right? Yeah, and there's like a coldness to it that like mm. it's a scene that like belongs to like a Michelle Hanukkah film. Um, mm. um, it has like this very you know like it's a wonder that it's not necessarily it's both immersive and also has this like detachment to it at the same time, just like the character of of Lydia. So yeah, like I I, I think like when mentioning the best scenes of the year, like. When I say the Juilliard sequence, you know what I'm talking about. I think that one has to go uh, be mentioned. And as someone who's not on board with Tar, which I probably need to rewatch because I'm so high praised on it when talking about it. I think it's on Peacock right now, but you can probably rent it at other, you might be able to rent it at other places. Uh, so do you, Wait, wait, do you think Lydia Tar like watches like 30 Rock? I mean, I, I could say, I, I do wonder what kind of comedy she'd be in. I feel like maybe she's into something like, no, you know, maybe she would. It's 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 fairly biting humor in Thirty Rock. It seems like it might be her kind of thing. You know, I think she's definitely yeah, more like a Thirty I, Rock per, definitely more of a Thirty Rock person than like a Parks and Rec person. You know, so definitely not The Office. Like that that that, that <laughs> like wastes her time. I, or like no, her take would probably be that like she was probably a huge fan of The British Office when it came out. <laughs> like that, yeah, yeah. Except except like you know, it wouldn't be as sound as pretentious when she says it as it does when like most American people say it. You like actually might believe, <laughs> you actually you might actually believe her when she says it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like, uh, uh, so like, do you quick question was Planchette like your performer of the year? Oh, uh, god, I liked everything everywhere all at once, somewhat. I mean, Tar's in my top 10 too, but like, I mean, I think I just kind of like, you know, I, I, I saw everything all, everywhere all at once, like almost like six months before I saw Tar. So I got pretty invested in thinking of Michelle Yeoh as like winning best actress, and then like I saw Tar and I was like, God, I can't even really get that mad if people vote for Kate Blanchett, even if she's already won before. So it's like, I've kind of like accepted it because it's like, yeah, it is that good. But like, I'd probably be a little happier if Michelle Yeoh won, but I'm not going to be mad if she doesn't because it's like, I just thought Blanchett was like that incredible. That's that's about where yeah, I'm yeah, at with it. Yeoh got like stuck in a year with Kate Blanchett. Like that's just like... The, but I mean, you never know. Like, I mean, like Yeoh won the SAG award and like that's uh, that's, that's sometimes a precursor you got to get. Like you, you never really know. It seems like everything out once is going to do really well all across the board. So, but I wouldn't be, I still yeah. would be surprised if Kate Blanchett wins. It's, it'll be very curious to see how, how it goes. Or they might just be like, hey, we're already giving uh, Kehu Kwan an Oscar. Like we don't need to award other actors from that film. We already gave him a nomination. So, so who knows exactly what uh, tack they'll take. But uh, Josh, thank you for talking about your favorite scene of 2022. I know it felt like killing off a lot of your children to narrow it down to that one, but I appreciated getting the chance to revisit. Uh, honestly, what might be my favorite scene of the year? I'm, I'm not really like giving, picking one. I'm just going to like, in, in the last segment, I have like my own little list and I'm going to like just read off the ones that like, like no one else already mentioned that I had on my list, but that was certainly one of them. So thank you very much for your time. All right. And now we're joined by Ben Lubin to talk about his favorite movie scene of 2022. Ben, I believe yours comes from a movie that I don't, maybe not a ton of people have seen. So if anyone actually wants to tune into this, we're, 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 we're going to talk specifics, but maybe this could uh, be something that like still intrigues someone to go back and watch it. Cause uh, you want to talk about the eternal daughter and for, for a movie that's like, you know, very, very quiet. I, I'd say it kind of leaves you with an, with a, with an, Oh shit kind of moment, at least, at least to me for a second. But I'm wondering uh, you, you want to talk about this birthday scene at the end of it. And, and yeah. I'm wondering, had you kind of already, did you already figure out what was going on before we get to that scene? I will say I had my, like, it's one of those movies where you have your suspicions about what's happening, mm -hmm. but especially because what's happening is almost secondary to, I guess, the the emotional context of the film itself. Sure. It's not a movie. It's like, you're not going to watch this movie and be like, okay, this, this clue is leading me in this direction. This is leading me in that direction. I think this is where the movie's going. Like, it's not... It's not a movie that exists to be deciphered. But look, just because for most of the movie, the implication of, of like, basically we're led to believe that the movie we're watching is about uh, a woman who has gone to a former family home turned hotel with her elderly mother to talk about their deceased father or about her deceased father. Mm -hmm. Over the course of the movie, there is sort of this very kind of almost mystical uncertainty to the events we're, we're, we're witnessing that uses kind of the visual language of kind of the gothic horror genre to kind of under, underline that uncertainty. Mm. The end of the movie, um, or the, the climax of the movie, involves a sequence that is supposed to be the mother's birthday. Mm -hmm. And to celebrate, the the main character, the, the filmmaker, has asked the young girl who 
works the hotel to prepare a cake and to prepare kind of like a, so they can have a special moment together at kind of the restaurant of this hotel. And there is this very uncomfortable birthday party sequence involving the the filmmaker and the filmmaker's mother like sitting across from each other at this table. And there is kind of this increasing frustration as the movie goes on um, that the main character feels of that sort of this maybe feeling that her mother is being ungrateful in some way. And it leads towards this moment of confrontation. It's not violent, but it's more like the, the, the violence from it is more the intensity of emotions being unleashed for the first time. This now adult woman who is older than the character's own mother was uh, when we got to know her in the souvenir films or the same age. It's this character as an adult who is finally allowing herself to give voice to frustrations that she has felt for a very long time. And there's almost a, a violence of confronting her elderly and infirm mother with just kind of the truth of her own truth. And the way the movie actually captures this is through these very kind of claustrophobic and surreal back and forth kind of talk reaction shots. And it's a movie that kind of, it's a scene that deliberately avoids putting either character in the same shot together for good reason, because Tilda Swinton is playing both characters. Well, most of the movie does, but not in yeah. a way that feels like, like you, when you mentioned this, when we talked about on the top 10 podcast, like it doesn't feel like a stunt. No. And I, but like, and sometimes you can kind of just, in some movies, like, you know, they do put them in the same frame when there's the same character playing each other here. It's, you know, they're almost never in the same frame, if I recall. There like, are moments they do occupy the frame together, but no, this one, it is very deliberate that we base all, more often than not, we are yeah. seeing each character from the other character's perspective. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of these expertly framed shots that feel almost surreal and kind of the back and forth nature uh, of, of the way they're, the, the way the scene is executed. And as it kind of gets more and more explosive and as we sort of feel more and more pour out of the filmmaker, it starts to kind of take on a very surreal tone. And it starts to feel like we it starts to feel almost inappropriate for her to be saying these things in this moment like there's nothing to kind of bring this up and the ultimate reveal of the scene the cake arrives and the main character who has sort of been trying her hardest to make things special for her mother and who feels like her mother has been almost un ungrateful brings her the cake and asks her mother to blow out the candles and there is a reveal that the filmmaker is sitting alone at the table. It's never explicitly stated, but it is sort of a moment that makes us understand that we have been watching what is on some level a ghost story the entire time. The reality of the film we've been watching, the, it is the mother who has been long dead or dead long enough that as we follow the the main character we're not watch like we're we're watching her try to process her own grief there are also implications that the film we've been watching may be the film that she wants to make it's not stated it's not answered but especially given the, the movie's observations about the cathartic nature of art it's in, it's at least raised as a possibility but there Tilda Swinton's performance in that scene is not in terms of a full movie, but in terms of a single scene, some of the best work of her career. The intensity of the younger woman and kind of the almost sad discomfort of the mother who is now being confronted with her kind of this element of her daughter that she almost can't sit with. It's it's surreal in the best possible way. It's one of those scenes, it's like you can talk about what it is, but you kind of need to experience it yourself. It is... It's a moment that, again, it recontextualizes the entire movie in a way that makes the entire film richer and sadder and more beautiful than it felt like even up, up until that point. And in terms of the actual craft of how it was filmed, the beautiful framing, the deep shadows in the way the hotel, like the hotel restaurant is captured and this almost claustrophobic and elegant framing is just such an important part of why that scene works in the way it does. Like there, the there's this one longer shot of the film of the filmmaker 
actually going back to pick up the cake and bring back to the table. That is just so viscerally sad and uncomfortable. You kind of like you feel like you want to kind of crawl out of your skin a little bit. There are there are a couple other scenes that I, I thought of. There, there, there's some from Welcome to the World's Fair. There's there are one or two scenes from Benediction. But when I thought of a single scene that I couldn't get out of my head this year, that scene from Eternal Daughter felt like the one. It's one of those things. It's you know, and it's. it's it's not like a, it doesn't it's not a cheap twist or anything like that is what I'd say. But at the same time, it was like and sometimes even in movies like that, you go, all of a sudden want to go back and watch everything that came before it to like see what you can pick up and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and it was it was kind of like a oh, wow, kind of moment for me without necessarily like that, that something that had like that kind of like urge, like, oh, did they just play a trick on me or something like that, that I need to go like d- check their work on or something like that. I didn't necessarily have that urge. I was just like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. So. No, I, I think like the way this movie explores its ideas are incredibly authentic and meaningful. And that scene, as much of a twist as it could feel in, in the hands of a lesser filmmaker or within the context of a worse film, it it feels appropriate. And I don't know, it's the the last shot of the scene, uh, Tilda Swinton alone with the cake. It mm-hmm. It's just a shattering moment. Yeah. But I think as, and it's it sort of, brings us to the ending of the film where as sad and hard as this has been everything we're watching feels like what is for this character and for our experience with this character an important part of processing these feelings of grief that she can't otherwise approach and whether that is through film or through the meaning of physical spaces or through art or self-delusion or through whatever it was she and we needed everything we have witnessed to get to this point. It's a beautiful scene and a beautiful film. And again, I, it's like I said, in kind of the top 10 podcast, Tilda Swinton's best work gets harder and harder to nail down every year, but this is up there with the best of it. All right, Ben. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk a little more in depth about one of your favorite scenes of the year. It was a movie, like I mentioned on the top 10 podcast, maybe not like my favorite kind of movie or something that like I'm on its whole wavelength throughout, but that scene is certainly one that kind of like makes things click into place a different way. So I enjoyed hearing you talk about it. Uh, Ben, uh, again, I appreciate the time and uh, thank you for joining us in talking about your favorite scene of 2022. I look forward to seeing which ones are your favorite in 2023. And now we're back to round out our recap of the top scenes of 2022 with Daniel Lima, who let off our top 10 podcast, but is uh, closing things out with us here. And Daniel, as we've already noted on uh, the top 10 podcast, you are our most frequent guest of 2022. You you p- pretty much already talked about most of your favorite scenes. So you had to dig a little deeper here and you picked the scene from a movie that like I'd forgotten about because I it was one I missed last year as your favorite of 2022. So maybe some of the listeners might not be as familiar with it either. Can you tell us a little bit about Resurrection and why you chose a scene from it? Well, Resurrection is a uh, horror film film what are the more arty horror films of the year uh it premiered at sundance i believe in 2022 um, we know follows... you love your arty horror yeah look hey you know weirdly enough this past year uh i've actually been a f- i mean hell you know you've got an a24 horror movie in my top 10 you know <laughs> who would have thought but uh yes no so uh resurrection it follows rebecca hall she is a kind of clinical and uh cold reserved woman raises a daughter by herself she kind of you know has like like a romantic flings that mean nothing to her and she lives a very ordered life and you know that's her you know uh she's in control of herself right Mm. but one day she spots somebody who might be from her past and it kind of leads to a sort of disintegration of everything that she's kind of cultivated for herself Mm. uh truthfully the movie itself I wasn't a huge fan of uh, this is one of the arty horror films that it was not my thing. Um, I'll admit that, but it has a scene that stuck out to me and has continued to stick with me since watching it. At one point um, she's at work late at night and this young woman who she's been mentoring, like, you know, giving career advice, giving romantic advice, goes up to her she's been you know acting out at work and it's clear that something's been bothering her to everybody who's in her life and uh this young woman asks rebecca hall like what's up i could you can talk to me and rebecca hall starts going into a monologue 
kind of detailing who this man was to her and the history that they have together. And going into it, you kind of have a sense that there was some kind of trauma associated with this guy, that there was some sort of kind of maybe a sexual component, obviously, but it ends up being something far, far stranger, something far more, I think, even disturbing just in the 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 nature of it it is there is there's a sexual aspect but there's also just i mean it's just wild the things that she's saying and she sort of builds this narrative with just her performance there's i don't believe any cut from her face uh the camera's just pushing into her for like 10 minutes and she crafts the story in a way that i really wish more films this year had taken this sort of approach just allowing the actor's performance to sell you on this kind of mini world that they're constructing so many movies this year uh for example we had recently talked about a man called Otto. they undercut their performers by you know cutting two reaction shots of the other person or putting a score underneath or flashbacks, you know, <laughs> flashbacks yes and here they just let you sit in this moment with her and allow you to get into the headspace of a woman who is kind of finally articulating something that she had been like, she had long since buried. Um, It's a very moving, very powerful, very scary uh, performance, very scary scene. And even though like, you know, we've, this has been a year for monologues. We've had the one in, you know, uh, living we had the one in of course pearl uh which is very very similar partially why when i walked out of the theater i wasn't quite so taken with pearl as by as as gage who i saw it with was that i had seen resurrection like like a month beforehand and i was like yeah but like i also saw resurrection they do kind of the same sort of thing but you know i've grown on pearl of course but like resurrection it, it has stuck with me like i what can i say um it, despite the movie itself kind of falling flat for me this sticks out to me as one of the greatest scenes of the year it's the kind of thing that i think makes the movie worth watching regardless of what you think you'll get out of it yeah well yeah because i mean for my understanding you're a little mixed on the movie but just like taking oh, uh, negative negative on the movie i would oh, say okay i didn't realize i go that far okay wow yeah i've got it at 142 for the year out of like 180 <laughs> so um, well, so it's it's, it's, it's kind of funny how you you can uh, you can find something to love that much in a movie that you're uh, that conflicted by or that yeah you're not like even I, that conflicted I guess yeah like I said the, this year has actually had like a ton of films where like I can pull something out of a movie that even I don't like uh, you know uh, Terrifier two great effects work uh, Triangle of Sadness Dolly Deleon's performance there is like a lot to commend from this year. Um, even within the films that I consider uh, kind of weak. Um, I I should note that one of the other reasons I picked this movie was that, you know, we've already talked about all the ones that I would talk about. Um, Even the, I I consider doing like an action scene breakdown, but the fact is, I think every single action movie that I've seen this year, I have talked about at least on like the chatter part of the episodes that I've been on toward Mm. the end. So uh, what can I say about the roundup lost bullet Two? um, you know, like I've, I've talked about all of these movies. So uh, I I was just going to say, I was just looking at Rebecca Hall's IMDb after you finished talking about it. I was like, what what else? I feel like I've seen her in something else recently that I liked. She's actually had like a weird five years. So it's cool that she's like still found some smaller stuff to be in than it may be like resurrection that's going under the radar. But I really haven't, haven't actually seen her in that many things. It's like, oh, I love her, even though I generally like her as an actress. You know? Yeah, and that's, the, that's another reason why Resurrection, I think, just didn't work as much for me is that, I mean, I loved her in Nighthouse last year. And it's kind of the same kind of performance, a woman kind of trying to escape the ghosts and trauma of her past. Uh, mm. It is very much kind of lockstep the same sort of performance, which, you know, it's good, but it's one of the reasons why, you know, Kate Blanchett won't be making my best actress list of the year. It's like, oh, another great performance by her doing something that you could imagine she'd knock out of the park. So uh, I, maybe that's unfair, but, you know, it just doesn't leave as much of an impression when I'm not surprised. Gotcha. You know, I, maybe I was thinking about, I was just thinking about how she did passing last year, which I was not as high on as I wanted to be. 
Same. Uh, but yeah, but like I, I, that's what I was thinking about. I was like, when did you do something big recently? It's like, oh yeah, that one got a little bit of buzz. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I you know, uh, just to wrap the whole thing up, Daniel, I wanted to like at least shout out some other scenes. If you had to make me pick a favorite scene of the year, it'd probably be the Juilliard scene in Tar, which we already talked about with Josh Brown. So Good I just want to, I just want to shout out a few other scenes that I really enjoyed to just kind of list them. I'm trying to make this a uh, shorter than the uh, top ten podcast, which you know, which is a very long thing. But like, I, I only have so much time to edit. We've got a b- bunch of other movies coming out now so they can already hear me talk about just about all of these because we've done podcasts on most of them or are going to do podcasts on them in the case of we're hoping to do an rr episode actually fred already talked about the not to not to that was the one i listed from rr though just to say it now i think my my favorite scene from rr is actually after seeing it in theaters is probably the opening one where uh, uh where, where, where we, we, we yeah where you get you get to see a, a the, the most uh consequential uh or someone face more consequences than most people ever would for throwing a molotov cocktail so <laughs> uh and i let's just say it's 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 just like an incredibly uh great way into the movie you know even though it's not the very first scene it's like the second scene and it's like right, oh, right. Shit. yeah yeah it is definitely like exactly pitch perfect action filmmaking like how this is how you introduce a character forget mm-hmm. action filmmaking oh, this is yeah. how you introduce a character yeah right i mean like it's it's, it's incredible action but at, 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 the, at the same time it's like oh cool like we're gonna know so much more about that character but it's it's, it's like a great introduction to him in that like it's like just grabs grabs your attention in a way that like I, I wasn't ready for going into the movie as much as you had tried to prepare me for that movie. So uh, we're gonna try and we're gonna try and make a longer episode about uh, RR happen in the next few weeks. So I look forward to doing that. I wanted to shout out, which has probably come up in passing a few more times since we did the episode on it, but the the smash cut to Justin Long halfway through Barbarian, <laughs> just like one one of the most memorable moments I've had in a movie theater in the last couple of years, hundred percent. Beautiful. Um, and th- th- and that's another one. Like, I mean, I we're not we're not doing awards podcast or anything, but I don't think you can talk about his performance enough. You know, so mm. uh, just uh, and, and, and that they asked him to do a lot and just half that movie, and he really delivers. My uh, supporting performance of the year. You just you, you just you just shouted out the Pearl monologue. I had that written down as just like that's obviously another very memorable moment from the movies last year. Just Mia Goth just was uh, incredible, and it was a little different, I, I suppose, from what you described in Resurrection. Because the, the re- part of the reason I like that scene was there were a couple times where it where it cuts to her uh, sister in law in that in the, in that moment, and I just like laughed because it's just mm-hmm. like you're progressively seeing how unhinged she is becoming, and it's funny to watch another character like slowly come to grips with that as well. And I don't know why I laughed at it. Like I <laughs> we talked about it on the podcast. I don't know if they wanted me to laugh, but it was just like kind of horrifying to like watch watch uh, or i think we already knew that she wasn't like all there but like to see the to see the another character have that very slow realization while (laughs) watching this great performance going on just a very cool scene for more than just the fact that like she said a lot of words in a row uh but i mean she did a great job of doing that too uh the fablemans the cutting together of the camping trip scene just uh you know i I, part of the reason i'm very fond of that movie is because it wasn't quite as straightforward as i thought it was going to be with respect to maybe what you think you might be when you hear spielberg's making a movie about his family actually kind of dark dark and messed up at points to that to see this kid going through this with respect to his family falling apart and that was just a really well put together scene uh the surgery in the back of the ambulance and ambulance that's just like incredibly memorable and yeah as much as sorry as much as that's a movie that i'm not a huge fan of i will cop to the fact that that scene is very fun that scene rules uh you already mentioned the restaurant confessional and living we just did a podcast on it don't feel the need to talk about that a lot more but that was a movie i was like expecting to feel like homework and that scene kind of like took my breath away the northman uh when you kind of learn the true nature of nicole kidman's character oh I yeah i i didn't i did not see that coming i uh and i i really like nicole kidman and i i like that movie maybe not quite as high on it as elijah and ben were on that podcast but like that was just a moment in the movie where like you've been set up to think one thing all along but it didn't you didn't feel cheated when you kind of have this revelation about that character. It didn't feel sometimes you you know a movie makes a twist like that and it feels a little forced. It was like you actually didn't know that much about her character at that point, such that it didn't feel an, like an unearned twist. I just thought it was well executed and incredibly well acted. And uh and and and, and lastly, I I, I want to shout out Cha Cha Real Smooth, a movie that I really love that hasn't come up a ton since we did the episode on it with uh, Denise and Josh. But I just like as someone that like is upset that I have not as a Jewish person that has not gotten invited to a bar mitzvah since I became 21 years old. Uh, I, I quite enjoyed living vicariously through this movie and seeing how these party scenes were pulled off. It was kind of, it was hilarious with respect to the way they had these 13 year old boys uh, just like being awkward and not knowing how to interact with girls. And I enjoyed just seeing everyone dancing and having a good time. I just thought they were really well executed and it was, a, it was a, particularly the first one. So I would highlight that as its own scene. So. Wait, you, you, you've never been invited to a bar mitzvah? 
since I turned 21. Like when you're, uh, you know, like when, when you're a Jew and you're growing up, and I've probably been to a lot fewer bar mitzvahs than like Gentiles that you know from more heavily populated Jewish areas. Because mm-hmm. when you're 13 in seventh grade, like you're going to get invited to a lot of them from your classmates. And whereas for me, like I, I had like one friend, one Jewish friend. I, there was three Jews in my high school graduating class of 343, and I was friends with one of them, but he didn't even end up getting a bar mitzvah. And I had like eight people in my bar, in my Sunday school class because it was just not a very heavily populated Jewish area. And I maybe went to like three or four bar mitzvahs from those people and then some other family members. But like I haven't been to one in uh, I haven't been to I, I, you don't really have a lot of reason to go to them once you're out of, <laughs> at, at, at once once you're like off at college and stuff. People your age aren't getting bar mitzvah unless you have like a, right. a cousin that's that's turning 13 and doing one. And I and I very well might actually have a cousin. Having a bar, uh, having a bot mitzvah in in about two years. So wait, I'm yeah, oh, sorry. What's the? There's a difference. I'm so sorry. Uh, bot mitzvahs for girls, bar mitzvahs for boys. It's just oh. yeah. So that's the distinction there. But you know, they always happen when you're about 13 years old. It's just I just haven't had. <laughs> you don't I, have many 13 year old friends in your life. Like, no, and I, I have two cousins on my dad's side that are not being raised Jewish, even though their dad is Jewish. And I have one on my mom's side that is but uh her, her her mom is not jewish her dad is i think she's going to have a bat mitzvah so maybe i will get to go to that and i'll be like the 32 or 33 year old that is just like rolling up trying to like you know party my ass off and drink uh just just to have an excuse to do it uh so it's like, like a, i take it that it's like uh you know if you're you know outside the age group it's kind of just like a singles night or it's like uh you know just get together and party what I mean, I wish I could say I, I wish that my uh, 13 year old cousin was going to have a bunch of like attractive late 20s, early 30s, nice Jewish girls there for, <laughs> for, for me to mingle with. I don't necessarily think that's the case. More just like a time to go back and see family and drink and eat and, uh, okay. and get to and get to enjoy an open bar. Uh, but I just haven't had that pleasure. So, and I, and I, and I thought, uh, but like, I thought Cha-Cha Real Smooth was probably kind of interesting and just, you know, you could tell that they, uh, uh, even though like that character is not Jewish, you can kind of tell the close knitness of the Jewish community that is coming together at these events and how mm-hmm. he's like, you know, uh, at least reconnecting with the other girl he knows from high school who is Jewish and, uh, how it's, it might be, it might be kind of fun just to like, you know, uh, tag along to an event like that or something like that. And I, I enjoyed the spirit of that part of that movie. So that's what I wanted to shout out. Uh, as I, as we, we might've noted at the end of your top 10 segment, I can't remember Daniel and I might actually like put together an episode over the course of the next year where we try and do more superlatives. Uh, it's just like, you know, it takes a little more planning than I had time for. So it's going to be the kind of thing where we're going to come together and think of maybe some more fun categories and bring in other, bring in other possible guests to join it. It's a work in progress, but best scene is just something I really enjoy talking about a lot, as I noted at the top of this podcast. And I figured why not try just kind of doing this as a one-off. It doesn't take that much time from any one person. And we get to kind of revisit some of the highlights of the year in movies so i appreciate everyone uh coming through and doing that with me and daniel for uh being such a uh, a great collaborator this year daniel thanks for talking about your best scene i look forward to talking about a lot more of them in 2023 oh always a pleasure